Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this week's episode of the Karma You podcast. I am joined by Lily Cole, who you may know as the model, actress, and entrepreneur. And she has written a new book, Who Cares Wins. Now, Lily spent four years researching this book, meeting some of the millions of people around the world who are working on solutions to our biggest challenges and committed to creating a more sustainable and peaceful future for humanity. The book explores issues from fast fashion to fast food and renewable energy to gender equality and features interviews with many expert, sometimes polarised voices. Who Cares Wins is a beacon of hope and dialogue in challenging times. And I absolutely love this book. She has gone into such depth with the research that's gone into it, amazing stories, her own experiences and other people's stories. It's really, really brilliant. I loved it. And in this episode, we talk about why we don't need to be perfect when it comes to the planet. We talk about climate guilt, something that I struggle with. We talk about reasons to be optimistic about the future. And we also get into the topic of eco-anxiety and how Lily handles it herself. I also want to let you know about my new monthly membership, Karma You Collective, which is coming very soon. It's basically a way to get ongoing support from me and a community of people who are on the same path as you in helping to become your calmest and happiest self. So you want to make sure you're on my newsletter. If you want to hear about that, I'm going to be sharing on there. So head over to www.karmau.com and enter your details either to get one of my freebies, the anxiety toolkit or my free confidence affirmations and you'll get all the details about Karma You Collective. So let's get into the interview with Lily Cole. Welcome Lily, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Pleasure, I'm all right, how are you? I'm good, thank you, I'm good. Um, how is everything going for you at the moment with everything that's going on in the in the world? How have you, have you been over the last few months? It's like, it's a, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's like a bit of a wild ride, isn't it? Um, I'm finding, I'm spending time with family and um, that feels really good. And I'm finding if I don't read the news on a daily basis and I kind of stay in my own little bubble, um, I don't mean the kind of technical bubble. I mean the kind of 
spiritual bubble of like friends yeah. and family, then I feel um, I feel generally okay, generally pretty good. But it is a bit overwhelming when you think about the global picture. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think steering clear of too much news is definitely a good idea right now. Um, congratulations on your book. I think Thank it was you. absolutely brilliant. So, so good. It's called Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. And you've also brought out a podcast of the same name. Yeah. Um, with, you know, some casual guests such as David Attenborough, Paul McCartney, Elon Musk, Caroline Lucas, um, to name but a few. And I've been binge listening all weekend. And I have to say, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, can you tell Thank us a little you. bit about, um, kind of a big question, but what led you to write this book in the first place? So the book is in a way a kind of, I guess, a reflection and amalgamation of things I've learned over the last 15 years, thinking about kind of our environmental situation and interconnected kind of social issues. And I went about writing in the first place to kind of document some of those learnings, um, quite specifically around a project I'd done on like community and the gift economy, because Penguin asked me to write about that project. And then in the process of writing it, I went much further than my own experience and tried to, you know, try to understand better all of the different um, kind of aspects of our, of our challenges and did a lot of research and interviewed a lot of people. So the lens went, you know, less on myself and more onto other people's work and other people's projects. Um, and, and yeah, it came out this summer and it feels like a relief to have finished <laughs> but the podcast is a kind of way to keep it somewhat alive and um topical as we kind of continue to learn and continue to address these issues yeah and I think yeah you've done an amazing job of of weaving into the book your own stories and your own experiences with a lot of research and a lot of um you know the facts of what's going on right now and and um and somehow made it not seem really depressing you have managed to, to sort of bring out the, the optimism for um you know what what we're what we're dealing with at the moment um I wanted to ask you a bit about something that I experience and I know that a lot of people experience this and it's um climate guilt um I know this sense of kind of you know I'm trying to do certain things like my shampoo is you know a bar shampoo but then you know, there'll be so many other things that it's, it's almost impossible to get like hummus. I mean, I, yes, I can make my own hummus, but I don't currently. And so I just feel guilty about that. Um, and I, there's a, something you say in the book that it sometimes feels as though you can't even breathe without stealing oxygen. And, you know, that it can sometimes feel a bit like that for, for some of us. Um, what, what's your take on, on climate guilt? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, it's something I've struggled with a lot um, in the past and I still struggle with to an, to an extent today, although I think I've gotten better at managing it. And um, on one hand, I felt like guilt is a really useless emotion and, you know, therefore we should try and get rid of it. And, you know, what's the point of guilt? Either you act on it and you change your behaviour or you shouldn't feel it, you know. Um, and then there's another part of me that thinks actually it's a really useful emotion because, it is, it's, it's connected to remorse and it's the part of our conscience that is telling us that we need to do better and is telling us that we need to step up and, and therefore it is really useful. Um, and so, yeah, I have kind of mixed feelings about, about guilt. Um, in terms of how I've dealt with it myself, 
I think what I've had to make peace with is the fact that it's impossible to be perfect and it's impossible to live in a kind of perfect way if you are kind of engaging in our systems, if you are engaging in the kind of mainstream, probably the closest to perfection would be if you were to completely go off grid and completely remove yourself from our systems and grow everything yourself and, you know, not be plugged into um, electricity, not even have a laptop. I have one man in the book, uh, Mark Boyle, who's in the first podcast too, who I would say is the kind of closest version of environmental perfection I found because he has taken it that far. But arguably many of us aren't able to do that or don't, don't feel the desire to do that. And there's a kind of pragmatic argument that not everyone can do that. Therefore, we have to find ways of interacting with our systems that are better rather than ignoring our systems altogether. Um, so my point of saying that is just, I guess, what I've come to peace with is that it's impossible to be perfect. And therefore, you have to kind of make peace with the best you best you can do. But what I do find is that the more and more I start to live my values and make kind of you know, one, one thing at a time, it's, you can't change everything overnight, but incrementally make changes and choices that feel better, the better I feel actually, um, because I feel, I guess, more truthful and more authentic and that I'm more, that my heart and my head and my actions are more aligned. Um, so in a way I've gotten out of the kind of anxiety or guilt cycle by taking action, by being more mindful. And that's still imperfect, still being okay with the fact that there is going to be exceptions, um, but by and large, trying to, yeah, trying to embody the ideas that I feel are right in this time. Mm, yeah, well, thanks for that reminder about, yeah, either do something about it or don't feel guilty because it is, is use, useless in a sense. Um, but I think it's also like your hummus example, it can be one thing at a time, right? Like, you know, eating hummus is great because you're not eating meat, right? For the most part, if you're eating hummus in a meal, it's probably because you're not eating meat. And that's like one huge step. I'd say one of the most important steps towards um, lowering our impact. And then yes, the next step might be, how do I make my own hummus? So I'm not using so much plastic. And one day when you have extra time, you might experiment with that. And I did actually, I made hummus in the lockdown and I also made nut milks in the lockdown because I hated using so much Tetra Pak. And as soon as I just it made that experiment, I was like, oh, actually, this is quite easy to do. It's cheaper. It's kind of fun. There's loads of leftover nuts that I could make cakes with. <laughs> um, and that's not to say that I'm doing that every time. Like now I'm traveling, actually. So I've, I'm staying with family and it's much easier to buy Tetra Pak um, oat milk or nut milk than make my own here. And I'm OK with that because I'm in this situation. And I guess I don't know. Sorry, that sounds like a convoluted way. But I guess for me, it's it's a kind of not being too hard on yourself is really important, but then using those triggers of guilt, for example, around the hummus as an opportunity to experiment and go, actually, maybe this weekend, I will try making my own hummus and just see how that feels and see how it tastes and see if it's fun to do that. Um, that's the balancing act, I think I try to find. I'm going to make hummus. I'm going to make hummus today. <laughs> <laughs> I did make hummus once, but I think the problem with hummus is that you can spend about £10 on like olive oil and like ingredients. And yeah, anyway, I'm going to try and make it. But oh, as interesting. You, was, you found it more expensive. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's surprising. You buy the olive oil, you buy the um, like obviously the chickpeas, tahini, actually works out more expensive, but. Wow. Um, Maybe you need to buy in bulk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I shouldn't be more hummus. expensive. Okay. <laughs> <I know. laughs> 
I eat a lot of hummus. Anyway, enough of my hummus. Maybe you need to go easy on the olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Um, when, when you were speaking now, I was thinking, you know, that's an, that's an example of where I need to listen a bit more to that. I don't know, is that cognitive dissonance where you kind of, you're doing one thing, but kind of fe- feeling something else. And there's that kind of, is that the right word for it? You're feeling that kind of conflict inside. And I think maybe I do need to listen to that a bit more and not just like shove it down and feel guilty and actually explore that a bit more. So Yeah, totally. I think that's it. That is, I think, the right word, cognitive dissonance. And it's something I think about a lot. I think we're all largely in a collective cognitive dissonance. I think it's very hard to not be in that state, even myself. Like, and I say even myself as somebody who's like spent 15 years reading the science, following the reports, understanding the situation. But in order to like function in a day-to-day way in my reality, I think I have to be in a state of cognitive dissonance because in the moments where I'm really on board what scientists are saying and the extremity of the situation, it's kind of crippling and you can't then just get on with your everyday life. Um, so I do feel like that spell is in some ways very um, necessary in a way of a, as a survival mechanism for many of us right now. Jonathan Safran Foas writes about it very beautifully in a book called We Are The Weather, um, where he, he basically argues that we're in a kind of all in a collective state of disbelief um, because it's it's too earth shattering to believe what scientists are saying. Um, yeah, mm, yeah. And when you say that, I um, I was this morning reading some of the comments on your Instagram, and the few uh, climate deniers had crept in. And um, I've I don't know if you've noticed this, but I found that even in um, kind of wellness or spiritual communities are sort of people who would ordinarily be really um, you know fighting for the planet have started to go down a path of climate denial and it seems to be linked to things like QAnon and uh, that sort of thing I've, I've noticed quite a few people have gone down that path and maybe it's because I mean part of it I mean I know there's lots of reasons why people would think that but maybe it is it's too horrible to to think that we can be having this impact on the planet and it's it's like, I would love I would love it to be a hoax I'd be like yes that's brilliant me too be amazing <laughs> we can all go on holiday all the time and not worry and yeah um but, yeah, it's interesting because yeah. in the in the book I and in the podcast I think I made a point of trying to explore multiple different perspectives on different issues um and really like you know seeking them out and listening like deeply to what different people might have to say about things, even if they didn't, even if I didn't agree with them um, in first first instance. Um, but the one area I didn't explore consciously was climate denial. Um, I kind of work on the basis that 99.9% of scientists agree on the science. Therefore, that's the basis. And what we can argue about is how we respond to that situation, but I'm not gonna waste time arguing about the science. Um, and, interestingly and I don't doubt that that choice and that decision but um because I think there's been way too much attention on climate denial I think it's like 20% of Google searches uh, or YouTube searches disproportionate to the scientific consensus and I think that just helps confuse people really yeah um but um but all that to say that the very end of writing the book one of the last people I interviewed was a was somebody running the nuclear fission company or nuclear fusion, I muddle up the two words, sorry. Um, and um, and it turned out he was a little bit of a climate skeptic and that really threw me because 
he's not like the stereotype of a climate skeptic who's just you assume maybe re, you know watching YouTube videos or QAnon conspiracies or whatever. Um, he was a you know a very intelligent, rational person running a big company that stood actually to gain, like a, a nuclear company stands to gain from climate change in the sense that you know the more we want to move to clean energy sources and more likely are nuclears to get support. So he didn't have business interests as far as I could see in supporting climate denial. Um, and so I spent a few days going backwards and forwards with him in email, trying to understand his position, looking at the kind of sources that he was using to, to doubt it. Um, and there was a day or two where I was so happy. I felt such peace. I was like, God, imagine if this is right. Like, I was very happy to be completely wrong about the book for like to throw it all away. I was like, imagine if this is, imagine if everything's fine, It'd be great. Um, but then unfortunately I spoke to two climate scientists that I really respect at Cambridge University. And I sent them all of his links and sent them all of the data. And they just very patiently rebuffed all of it and explained why it was misinterpreted and why it was wrong and why the data is actually very, very clear in our situation. Um, and needless to say, I ended back at kind of, you know, it's the same square of, of believing scientific consensus. But I can see why it's very, well, I can see on one hand why it's very appealing to believe skepticism because it's much more calming in a way. Um, and I can also think that's coupled with the fact that we have a rising mistrust of people in authority and misinformation and kind of mistrust of politicians and kind of ec experts in, um, in um, speech marks. So I can see how the coupling of that would be breeding a kind of, yeah, kind of climate denial movement. But the thing is, it's, I mean, it's, I don't know about your experience, but it's so obviously true. You know, the last five years have been the five hottest on record. Like, I've seen that. We see that. We experience it. The wildfires now in, you know, in many places around the world are completely unprecedented and they're happening every single year. Um, you don't have to go to the Arctic to see the physical changes that are already happening. Like, I think even, you know, COVID, the UN Environment Agency has a connected basically to the climate and biodiversity crisis. It's the same reasons that we are having these crises, very similar reasons that we have um, increasing number of infectious diseases like COVID. So it's very hard. I think you'd have to be very disconnected from reality to not be paying attention, even if you don't believe the science and go, oh, actually things are changing. You know, we are having physical, real, tangible effects from change and we don't know where this is going. Yeah, I mean, what was it, 36 degrees or something in, in uh, Cambridge in the summer? I think that was the highest temperature it's been in England or something. Um, yes, something is, something's happening. I think we can yeah, all yeah. agree just by looking out the window, just feeling the temperature or noticing there aren't so many bugs as there were when we were growing up. Um, but I wanted to ask you a bit about eco-anxiety. I um, have had, you know, anxiety a lot in my past, not so much in recent years, but when all the fires were um, happening last year and it was suddenly in the news and being talked about, I think it was August, 2019, I went down a proper like rabbit hole of like really feeling anxious, not being able to sleep, kind of, I read that, um, that scientific paper that I won't name because I think it has been so somewhat discredited, but it paints a very gloomy picture about um, the state of the world. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know the one I'm, what I'm talking I about. I think so, I have a vague memory of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and 
and yeah, so I went down this real kind of rabbit hole of eco-anxiety and I don't, I don't feel quite so anxious now, but um, it made me think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are feeling eco-anxiety and yet there are a lot of people who maybe aren't worried enough. Like it, we kind of, yeah, there's not enough. I don't know. Where do you, do you see there, <laughs> there needs to be a balance there or um, is some eco-anxiety okay? I mean, I think it's probably quite similar to guilt that like some people, you know, ironically, the people who feel guilty are often the ones who are trying to do something when they're more aware of the situation. And then there are so many people who are having a huge devastating impact in their behavior on the world. You know, CEOs of massive corporations, for example, who are not stepping up to these issues and they feel no guilt. <laughs> so there doesn't seem to be a logical connection sometimes between the emotional reality and the actions that we take. Um, and I think with eco-anxiety, it's probably similar that, um, that, yeah, I would question how useful anxiety is. I don't think that, that it's going to help necessarily solve it. At the same time, it's probably really important because it's, it's, our, it's our way of, of understanding danger, right? And it's important that we're not in denial and it's important that we do have triggers and signals that say to us, hey, something's not okay. You need to you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware of this danger. And then how you react to that, whether you make changes to your lifestyle, um, whether you think about taking political action, whether you, you know, like there are different ways then you might then react to that information. But I think it's a fairly natural survival mechanism to, 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 to trigger us, I guess, like a flight or, for, you know, a fight or flight, trigger us to realize that something's um, concerning. In terms of myself, I've definitely had periods where I have really intense eco-anxiety. Um, I think I have a kind of residual level ongoing now on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but I think I've just, I think I've kind of figured out how to just live with it and not be consumed by it. Um, but it oscillates. Some days it's worse than others, you know, and some days, and I think a lot of people who are working in this space I speak to feel the same that some days they're optimistic and some days they're 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 not you know um and I think that's those those waves of kind of part of being human and engaging with these topics and um yeah mm. sorry I don't know if that's very clear but no that, that's that's good I like I like your way of um holding two two sides of things and be able to to hold that um I definitely have spoken to actually have a podcast episode coming up soon on similar topic um, about how much we should care and looking at that duality. And I've spoken to a few different psychologists who say that they've had a really increasing number of, of clients coming in with eco-anxiety that they're dealing with. Um, and on one hand, you could see that as a negative, but actually one of the main reasons I have optimism right now in this situation is that in the last 15 years the awareness has never been so high and it feels like in the last few years there has been a kind of sea change in awareness of the environmental situation and it being a really high priority for not everyone but for a lot of people and a lot of communities and of course that's going to create more eco-anxiety as a consequence but we need that awareness and for me that awareness gives me a lot of hope that we might actually create change because 10 years ago, there was, you know, a vast majority kind of living in complete denial of this, uh, of the kind of extent of this crisis, which was, you know, has been documented very clearly for decades. It's not new information, um, but it feels newish to the mainstream public consciousness. Yeah, 
Yeah. I remember my parents were hippies, still are, and <laughs> they used to, I used to watch this video called Gaia, and it was narrated by Dawn French, and she was the earth, and she was kind of like a plasticine faced oh. earth, um, and I remember being wow. like five or six and watching this, and it was all about how like uh, the CFS was hurting the, you know, ozone mm. layer and fires and that sort of thing, and that was like 30 years ago, and um, so obviously... You know, there How old are things you? out there. I think I'm the same. I'm 34, so I'm a year older than yeah. you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 32. Um, and I actually, when I was in school, we had the whole ozone. Um, I remember we did like a whole sub, like a whole topic. I just took an artwork on it randomly on the ozone hole. And for me, that's a really good example of how when there was awareness and then there was action and there was international cooperation, we did manage to kind of fix that for want of a better word. Um the ozone hole is now closing and they think it will close, I think, in the next century. Um, so that's a good example. There aren't many. There's that, there's whaling. I mean, there's a few examples of where the international community have come together and really tried to create a positive change. And I think that, you know, climate change and the biodiversity crisis can be another one of those moments. And we are just in the process, right, of, of seeing if they'll step up. Mm, they'll yeah. step up. We'll, I don't like they'll. It's like, if we'll step up. Yes, we will. Yeah. We will. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, kind of what we eat. I know that you're vegan, vegan, mm-hmm. my new yeah. favorite term. And that also describes the way I eat. Okay. Mostly vegan, occasionally eat cake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and is it right that you were, you were raised vegetarian? No, I was actually, I was raised, um, I was raised McDonald's, God okay. bless them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, I chose to be vegetarian when, not just McDonald's, I'm joking, but I did have a lot of McDonald's in my first 10 years. Um, and then when I was 10, I put together the facts that you had to kill an animal to eat it. it. Took me, I think, quite a long time, really, 10 years to figure that one out. <laughs> um, and then I became a very strict vegetarian. Um, I used to read every single packet of everything. I was quite annoying about it. Um, but I didn't consider dairy. And then later I started thinking about kind of, you know, dairy and all the other complicated things about how we eat. Mm, Yeah. And um, I know you mentioned this a fair bit in the book and also in the podcast about the impact of animal agriculture on greenhouse gas emissions. And I think, I think you wrote this, I wrote it down between 18 and 51%, um, depending on kind of what, who you ask or what study you look at. Um, that's the amount of, or the percentage of greenhouse gas emissions that are attributed to animal agriculture. Yeah. Um, and we kill a billion animals a week to eat. Yeah. Seems like a lot. Seems like a so, lot. And that's yeah. land animals. That's not including marine. Then it would be a lot higher. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. Do you, do you see that, um, do you think people will change their diet? Is that, is that something that we need to do in order to, to help um, the situation with you know, global heating? I think 100% we have to, um, not just in terms of global heating, in terms of global heating, in terms of the biodiversity crisis, which is gets less attention, but is equally scary and um, um, problematic. And also in terms of infectious diseases and public health, as I mentioned, it's very clear that we are the science is very clear that we are having more and more infectious diseases, that three quarters of them are zoonotic, they're passing from animals to humans. And the reason for that is, um, are a few things, but they, the UN think the first reason is increased um, appetite for animal protein, so meat and dairy, etc. 
The second reason is our intensive animal agriculture systems. The third reason is the wildlife trade. I think the fourth and fifth are travel and urbanization, but the primary reasons are around the animal agriculture industry. And it's not just COVID, COVID, swine flu, um, foot and mouth disease. I mean, there's like a list of infectious diseases we've seen in recent decades, and there will probably be more um, because of the systems we have that are very unnatural and in terms of how humans are interacting and with animals and how animals are interacting with one another. Um, so all that to say, that I think, yes, we definitely, definitely, definitely need to change those systems. Whether that means that we all go vegan or not, I think is I'm less clear on or opinionated about. And um, I spend a good part of the chapter on food in the book and also my, one of the podcast episodes exploring the debate around meat and whether there is an argument for having a version of animal agriculture that's more regenerative and sustainable um, and good for soil fertility, et cetera. And I respect many of the environmentalists who make the case that, that a small amount of healthily raised animal meat is positive for the environment as opposed to negative. Um, but it's certainly gonna be a lot, lot less than we're eating now um, because the planet can't sustain, can't, it can hardly sustain the amount of animal agriculture we're doing right now. And that's with intensive systems. So if you were to get rid of factory farming and intensive systems, you wouldn't have the land space to, um, to do kind of regenerative agriculture, you know, grass pasteurized, nice organic meat for everyone. It's just not possible. Um, so fundamentally, I think our diets do have to change. The thing that gives me a lot of hope is actually technology because there is a huge movement right now um, of what's called, I mean, there are different words for it, like clean meat, or um, lab-grown meat is an example. Um, there are like different bio, kind of bio-agriculture um, where people and companies and with billions of dollars behind them are developing alternative meats that are molecularly identical to meat, um, but are not coming from animals. And I've read a few reports on the trajectory that that industry is, is kind of is set, is set on. And it's expected that in the next, say 10, 15 years, the animal agriculture system as we know it will be completely disrupted by those innovations. Not for ethical reasons, not, I mean, I'm sure some of the investors are doing it and the founders are doing it for ethical reasons, but this won't be necessarily disrupted, disrupting the market for ethical reasons. It'll be disrupting for other reasons such as cost and efficiency, that if you can make meat that tastes like meat, looks like meat, smells like meat, bleeds like meat, but it's cheaper and it's more nutritious. Inevitably, people are going to start choosing that alternative, whether or not they care about the animal welfare or the planet. And I think that's the tipping point that many of these companies are trying to make. And I'm hopeful they will be able to make. That is, yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how that that changes and how amazing if you can make meat and no no one has to die trees don't yeah. have to get cut down that would be nice wouldn't it and that everyone can have their burgers everyone's yeah. happy yeah 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 mm. yeah i mean the i interviewed in the book pat brown he's the stanford scientist who founded impossible foods and even though we have seen a huge rise in vegan vegetarian diets and i would argue that that's really important because it continues to push the industry in the right direction um he doesn't believe that 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 kind of voluntary choice is going to be enough to change the situation and that without having some kind of draconian political rules that just ban meat, which are very unlikely to happen anytime soon, 
or maybe ever, um, that therefore you need to persuade people who don't care about the ethics, who don't care about the planet. You need to find other ways to persuade them and making alternatives that are cheaper and better is the way to do that. Yeah, I was li- literally listening to that episode before we got on the call. So it's very fresh in my mind. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm- my utopia will be like all of like, there'll be no, definitely no factory farming, but maybe a small amount of like regenerative farming with animals but like a much smaller amount and it's all done in a much more holistic um kinder way to to animals yeah and is that because the cows like the cow poo puts uh manure on the fields or something and it turns into this cycle of like fertilizing the is it to do with that is that why it's sometimes beneficial to have animals yeah so what there's there's mixed science and there's mixed arguments on this it's a bit of a tricky area but some environmentalists would argue that um, the, the most healthy way to, to farm for soil health is to rotate, well, there's a few different things, not to use chemical fertilizers and pesticides for one thing, because they derode the, the soil of nutrients, to rotate crops and also to rotate animals, because then, as you mentioned, the manure will help bring nutrients back into the soil and help fertilize the soil. Also, the way the animals trample and pick and just move the food around just sorry move the soil around and move things around is good for soil health um alice waters who's an amazing kind of activist and chef that i put in the book and the podcast she says at one of the schools that they work at they had a trick chicken tractor that would go around and that's a joke right that you'd have like a little um pen with a chicken and it would they consider it like a tractor because the, the what the chi- what the chicken is doing is basically like rummaging in the in the soil in the same way that a tractor might um, I think that's a good metaphor to help understand that idea. Um, I think what a lot of those environmentalists are concerned about is that if you went to 100% vegan reality um, and lab-grown meats and molecularly kind of identical, um, you know, like plant-based burgers, um, that you'd actually wouldn't be addressing soil health because you to feed those burgers and to feed those, you need feedstock for the plant-based versions often soy but there are other versions and often the feedstock that they're using um, is not organic and are grown in massive monocultures and that is just creating another environmental problem because you're degrading the soil health through monocrops that are not organic and use loads of pesticides or fertilizers and so I think the perspective from those environmentalists is that actually we need a much more holistic way of thinking about agriculture and land um, because even if we were all vegan, we would still have to grow a lot of crops, like many less crops um, compared to eating meat. We still have to grow crops, right? You still have to eat grains and vegetables. So how are you going to grow those? And can we use um, agricultural systems that are good for soil health as opposed to ones that are deplete- depleting the soils? Because the soil actually contains right now more carbon than I think I read four times more carbon then in all of the atmosphere and trees, et cetera, combined. Like the soil is such a huge carbon sink. And so actually looking after the soil, empowering it to, to absorb more carbon, ensuring it's healthy enough to, that it can keep producing crops for many decades to come is also really a big, a big part of um, environmentalism. Sorry, that's super complex. No, just I love li- it. I love it. <laughs> I think just 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 send people to episode two and then it will yeah. be much, much clearer than me trying to re uh, restate what they say <laughs> did you watch um on Netflix kiss the ground 
a documentary mm. all about I haven't watched it but I've been meaning to and I've seen it shared loads and I think it's exactly it's basically what I'm talking about right they make it sound so simple just yeah sustainable agriculture can get all the carbon out of the earth put it into the roots into the soil everything's going to be fine so that's what I'm <laughs> holding on to and do you know in a way it is that simple like yeah. even though this this the situation of climate change and um and everything we're dealing with is so terrifying actually just empowering nature will fix it like we know that it's like the simplest possible solution is literally under our feet um we just have to figure out how to how to do that right how to empower nature i was very talking about like optimism versus pessimism i was very pessimistic on friday you might have seen if you're looking at my Instagram feed because there was a bill in the EU Commission um, on whether to renew CAP, which is the Common Agriculture Policy, for another seven years. Um, and it's arguably one of the most important policy decisions that that is being made um, in terms of the trajectory of climate change and biodiversity, because agriculture is per that quote, you know, 18 to 51%, that's just animals, that's not even all agriculture, animal agriculture's impact on, on, on climate change and greenhouse gases. Um, but also um, it's uh, like agriculture takes up half of, over half of our land, arable land globally. Um, and the land is what we are dealing with. Like the land is everything. It's either like the land, if you manage it in the right way, will be a solution, will we'll absorb more carbon by its nature. Growing crops should be a solution, should be capturing carbon and creating biodiversity in its own process. But if it's managed in a, in a, like, in a problematic way and it's degraded, then it has the opposite effect, right? <laughs> then it's part of the problem. And I think for a long time, it's been largely part of the problem and things like the common agricultural policy have really actually been badly designed from an environmental perspective and have made, have made you know, a lot of European agriculture part of the problem as opposed to being part of the solution. And so the renewal of that policy, I think was really devastating to a lot of environmentalists um, because it flies in the face of the, of the commitments that European leaders have been saying that they're making in terms of Paris and you know in terms of listening to climate science, it's the two. It just shows that the policy and the and the talk are not adding up. Mm. Yes. Sorry, I feel like I'm just ranting. I'm going to no, not at all. I'm just processing. I'm just thinking. <laughs> I did want to ask you a bit about optimism because. Um, yeah, I think just to quote your book again, if you believe the ship is sinking, there's no point in fixing the hull. So I know I could I could get myself down, down this kind of rabbit hole of just thinking, what is the point? I'm just going to do what I want because, you know, it's all, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing I do matters. So I may as well, you know, not bother. And if we all thought that, that would be disastrous. So optimism is is essential, isn't it? And um, and are there other reasons to be optimistic? Are there things that you can tell us that are gonna <laughs> make, us, make us feel like there is a point in um, trying and and kind of engaging with this and feeling hopeful about the future? Yeah, sure. I mean, I have several reasons for choosing optimism. Um, one is I think it's actually a rational choice that um, there are many reasons to be optimistic. There are many movements that are happening that suggest that people, a lot of people are trying to make things better, are trying to turn things around. Um, whether that's examples in technology, like some of the ones we've discussed so far, whether that's 
kind of activism and protest movements such as the school strikers and Extinction Rebellion and these kind of huge movements that are asking for political change, whether it's the fact that there has been more and more kind of political talk and some commitments around kind of climate change. I'm not saying it's been enough, but there has been an increasing amount. That's, I think, a reasons for optimism. Um, so I think there are there are many like literally like rational reasons why you could say actually a lot of people are trying to fix the situation um, and therefore we might be able to because humans have achieved pretty extraordinary things in the past when we've you know worked together and set our mind to something. Um, my other reasons for optimism is that it's just going to make you happier. You know, like is that you know there's that old. Um, the old kind of parable of it's better to believe in God because if you it was like this was back in the day when you'd go to like hell or heaven you know I mean sorry if some people still believe that but you know and like most of Europeans believed you'd either go to hell or heaven when you die um and I can't remember the philosopher who said it but he said it's better Pascal's wager I think it's called it's better to believe in God because if you believe in God and you're wrong, nothing happens. But if you don't believe in God and you're wrong, then you go to hell. So you may as well just believe in God. <laughs> and I see optimism a bit like that. It's like being optimistic or trying to be optimistic about the situation and believing that we can solve it. If we're wrong, you're just gonna be a bit happier as you live your day-to-day -day life and the outcome will probably be the same. Um, whereas if you're pessimistic, then the outcome will probably be the same, but you've like, not been so happy living your own life. And at the end of the day, we're all gonna die one day and we've got to try and enjoy our lives, right? So there's that argument to it, which is quite selfish, but I think makes sense to me that actually just choose it because it's better for your mental health, basically. Um, and then the third reason is connected to that. Um, and this may be a little bit fluffier, but I sort of believe that like what we expect sometimes becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, um, and therefore, if we are all pessimistic, and this goes back to the quote you gave in the book of fixing the hull, if we, if we do kind of give up and say, oh, you know, we're fucked for want of a better word, so we may as well not bother, then we probably are gonna be fucked because no one's gonna bother or no one's gonna try. Um, but that actually, if we believe that it's possible to fix this and we believe that humans can turn this around, then that actually could become a self-fulfilling prophecy because we're more likely to take optimistic action. We're more likely to make the changes we can to try and align with that future. Um, and so I think it's more, more, it's more likely to create a more optimistic outcome, basically. But I see also optimism as like a daily choice that sometimes I'm able to make better than other days. You know, I don't, it's not a kind of, I don't just naturally wake up being optimistic. It's a, it's a choice to go, I'm not gonna despair. I'm gonna believe that we can get out of the situation or at least try to try my best. I was wondering, I often ask this um, question to guests, are there things that you do yourself to, to stay optimistic or to take care of your mental well-being? Are there certain practices that you like to do in your in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, actually, the end of the book, I kind of go into this quite a lot, I think, the kind of mental health aspect. Um, and in a way, I think I realised, you know, I think I went through the very typical activist journey of working really hard on projects I was working on then getting completely burned out and really like suffering in a way my own mental health as a consequence and realizing that actually all that was doing was bringing stress and negativity to myself and to the people close around me um, and it still happens occasionally that I'll get really burned out and I get into that mind space 
But um, what I think I realized is that actually taking care of, trying to take care of my mental health, um, trying to be happy, trying to be less anxious was not selfish as it might seem to be, but actually is a part of the solution in a funny way. Because if you can bring, if you can bring happiness and um, hope to the people you are interacting with on a daily basis, and if we can all do that for each other, then it's a, it's a much better kind of collective situation. Um, and the change begins with ourselves, doesn't begin out there you know it begins here and in, in ourselves and if we can if we can find peace in ourselves and we're much more likely to bring peace outside as within so without as above so below as um those sayings go so um i feel like yeah mental health is um so is super important um and um maybe is the most important thing actually in this journey because i think that if we only if we change our inner worlds we see our outer worlds change collectively and again it's kind of fluffy because you can't quantify it <laughs> but it makes sense to me and actually there's a really amazing woman I interview in the book called Putani um, who's a, a leader in a tribe in the Amazon that I've gotten to know called the Yawanawa and she often speaks about this that her that the healing the healing begins with ourselves that healing the planet all begins with healing ourselves um, and that really resonates and makes sense to me in terms of actionable things I try to do, um, I think I kind of know my recipe. I mean, I've experimented with so many things over the years that I think I could easily just write myself my own prescription of like what I need to do every day to be happy. I love that recipe. <laughs> yeah, that's not to say that I follow it. <laughs> I often like think, Lily, you're such an idiot. Like just do these five things and you'll be happy <laughs> and instead of like not doing them and then getting stressed. Um, but I'd say, yeah, the things that I've discovered that work really well for me, meditation, for sure. Um, if I get into a habit of meditating 15 minutes a day, I notice a difference um, because I just have a bit more control in my mind, basically, and I'm able to create space in my mind. You do um, a certain type of meditation? No, I kind of just sit there yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, wait. Um, I find it much easier to meditate after doing yoga. And so the other thing on my list is yoga. Um, and I'm not, I've never been good enough, even though I've done a few different teacher training courses for yoga, I've not been, um, disciplined enough to create my own daily practice very well. I mean, I can do a bit, but not a lot. Um, so I kind of depend on being near a good class or having access to a good class. And then some reason in the class dynamic, it's much easier for me to do an hour and a half without questioning it. And then I really reap the benefits afterwards of feeling much better and meditating blissfully for a while. Um, so yeah, yoga, I love Kundalini yoga. I love um, like Ashtanga and Hatha and the kind of more, more common ones too. Um, so yoga and meditation are key for me. Sleep, I mean, sleep is so important. I find it has such a big impact on my mental health. Um, and I've actually started recently using a, an app called Headspace if you've tried that but I've they've got really great sleep meditations and I find if I'm having sometimes I'll suffer insomnia and I I'll like be awake in the night and I find that putting one of those on and just listening to it really helps me actually get back to sleep so I've been doing that nice. I find my diet's really important that um I'm not crazy fanatic about it and I like to have fun and drink etc but I do notice an impact that if I'm eating healthily it affects my moods. Um, so I try to be mindful of that. 
um, exercise, obviously. Um, yeah, I'd say they're the main things. And also like having, making sure that you just like have time with friends and family and do, do things you enjoy. Like actually that's really important, right? To remember that why we're alive and, and um, yeah, not, not just spend time obsessing about the future and the past, but actually just trying to enjoy our lives in moments and be present. Totally, totally. What yeah, about you? Is there anything on your list that I didn't have in mind? No, no, pretty, pretty similar. I would say definitely. Yeah. I think yoga is like the gateway drug to meditation for me. It's like it, it kind of. I can't meditate so easily unless yoga has occurred, and then yeah, you can get into the zone much more easily. I think. And I know. feel so grateful that like we live in a time where we have access to all this information, you know, it's extraordinary. Like our generation, like not even our parents' generation had this, I don't think. I mean, maybe a bit if you're in the right circles, but like how mainstream all of these different movements are and the access to different cultures. The fact that I can do Kundalini yoga, you know, which has come out of India only in the sixties and have access to like thousands of years of wisdom through those yogic practices. I'm quite interested in like, plant medicine and like what we can learn from indigenous cultures that that work kind of in a spiritual way with different plant medicines and I've tried a few like the fact that we can have access to the wisdom of these cultures that have had thousands of years sometimes working with different medicines or different kind of uh, meditation techniques or different yoga practices for me just feels like such an amazing blessing um so I feel very grateful actually to be it's another reason for optimism that we yeah, live in a moment yeah. where if we want to work on mental health, we have so many different opportunities and ways in which we can think about trying to do that. Yeah, it's amazing. I was um, with the Huni Kuhn in December last year for a oh, few wow. weeks. And you, you're spending time with people who have done like years and years on their own in the jungle, drinking ayahuasca every other day in this really deep practice, you know, a tradition that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, it's like extraordinary opportunity. And how did you find it? Extremely challenging. <laughs> yeah. challenging. <laughs> yeah, but amazing. Like, you know, there's nothing compares to that experience really. Yeah. But yeah, challenging for a girl that likes hair curlers and toilet, flushing toilets, but yeah, amazing, you know, as well. How was your experience? Yeah, extraordinary. Um, and actually I've been invited to, to meet with the Huna Queen a few times and I'd like to do that. I've heard very good things about, about them as a tribe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also another part of the book in terms of, and my exploration of solutions. I think the role of indigenous communities and indigenous wisdom um, is like essential. Um, and actually I was watching a TED talk a day or two ago with Wade Davis, do you know him? Mm, He's an anthropologist and and he talks about, uh, it's quite an old talk and I was aware of the information, but he just presented it in a very strong way um, that that the crisis we have of the loss of cultures is as big as the biodiversity crisis, that we're just losing every, you know, almost every day we're losing cultures, we're losing languages. Um, We're becoming, you know, one kind of more homogenous culture and that actually there's so much we can learn from different cultures who have different ways of thinking and different ways of seeing the world and different ways of understanding reality and the diversity of 
of those different ways of being and those different types of perception we have so much we can learn from um compounded with the fact that actually if you look at biodiversity on the planet that the it's predominantly i can't remember the statistics exactly but it's like disproportionately high in indigenous land so actually even putting the spiritual kind of cultural aspect to the side even just the idea of conservation we need indigenous leadership in terms of um understanding i guess the land and how to work with the land and um how to have a different relationship to the land really and respect for the land yeah absolutely and yeah even aside from that you know so many of our kind of modern medicines come from plants in the amazon it's like a ridiculous Mm -hmm. proportion of um you know either the inspiration or the actual you know chemical structure itself has come from those plants and we're risking losing the amazon at the rate we're going so Mm -hmm. need to get our asses in gear so that's why your work is so amazing and important lily um and thank you so much much. bringing stuff together bringing stuff together information yeah as you say the sellotape that kind of brings together holds together different ideas and um, sellotape or string i mean string is much more eco (laughs) the biodegradable sellotape (laughs) (laughs) um amazing i could talk to you for many hours but i'll let you get on with your day um yeah definitely recommend people buy your book who cares wins and listen to the podcast um, is there anything else you want to share in terms of where people can find you or anything else you want to signpost? No, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to signpost Facebook or any of the platforms at all, but Instagram is where I share most of my stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, until a better alternative that's not yes. Facebook comes up. Yes, <laughs> yes definitely. <laughs> um, amazing. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Yeah, pleasure. Um, thanks for your patience. It was lovely to talk with you. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Bretheridge. Don't forget you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 